Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa. It's the middle of October. We are halfway through our jaunt into Halloween. And in order to fully celebrate this holiday, which as far as Disney is concerned, began back in August, we need to bring in one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I'm sorry, Len. I'm working on my Christmas decorations with Disney. you got to think ahead. I'm waiting for the day where I walk into Target next week and they've got Valentine's Day stuff out. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I think that we're just five minutes away from that. Just the one continuous holiday. Hello, Chris McQuanzica. <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> All right. So I actually want to talk about my visit to the early October Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween party that I went to, but let's do a couple of other news updates first. James, it's been more than a decade, but sadly, Stitch's Great Escape has now closed at the Magic Kingdom. It's turned from a ride into a meet and greet. What do you make of this? It is what it is. It is a Band-Aid. The public mm-hmm. still loves Stitch as a character, and the studio knows this. In fact, that's why behind this live-action Dumbo and Aladdin that's being produced right now, they've got a script prepped for a Stitch movie where it's a live-action little girl playing Lilo and, and a live-action woman playing Donny and a CG version of Stitch. And this character isn't going away. While the Stitch's Great Escape attraction is still tentatively slated for this Ralph Rex the Internet themed attraction, for now, as just sort of a placeholder, here is a place where it's absolutely guaranteed that guests can go to meet with this character. And judging by the lines since this thing opened, what, within the past week, this is something yeah. the public really wants to see, or, or they want to get pictures taken with this character. And But again, it's a Band-Aid. It keeps the character available without having to run the attraction, which frankly tests really poorly. Yeah, it was the lowest rated attraction in Walt Disney World by a long shot. In fact, uh, the lowest rated attraction in any domestic mm-hmm. Disney theme park. Not a surprise that it, it went away. I'm a little bit surprised that this is the place for the character greeting because there's so many other areas in Tomorrowland that you could have a character greeting that, uh, and those places aren't in the middle of a walkway down Tomorrowland they, from a traffic congestion perspective. is a little bit odd to see it there. But I'm glad that Disney finally recognized that the ride wasn't working as entertainment and got rid of it. Let's move on. So you mentioned Stitch is going to get a, a live action film at some point. Let's talk about what is not going to be a film anytime soon, and that is gigantic. October 10th, uh, Catmull broke the news that Walt Disney Animation Studios is shelving its version of Jack and the Beanstalk. John Lasser himself, you know, talking about how Disney doesn't have a definitive version of Jack and the Beanstalk. And for those of us who know Mickey and the Beanstalk, it's like, okay, all right, I get that. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, he did use the word definitive. That's fine. All right. There we go. Okay. All right. But anyway, so this was, you know, going to be Jack and the Beanstalk set in Spain during the age of exploration. And the whole notion was that you had this six-foot-tall, 18-year-old guy named Jack who climbed the beanstalk, and when he reaches the top of the beanstalk, he meets this 60-foot-tall, 11-year-old girl called Inma, and they eventually join forces because they have to take down this quintet of 120-foot-tall villains, the storm giants, who were looking to take over both the human and the giant world, and Early on, there were warning signs that things weren't coming together. Disney actually announced that Gigantic would be out in theaters March 9th of 2018. Well, June 30th of 2016, Disney said, wait a minute, we're going to move Wreck-It Ralph to Ralph Wrecks the Internet to that date. And 
Gigantic will now get pushed to November of 2018. So it'll Mm -hmm. be our big holiday release. So, you know, that happens. However, six months later, Disney brings Meg LaFauve on board. Now, she's the screenwriter of Inside Out and The Good Dinosaur, and she's now been designated as Nathan's co-director. And what's her for folks at the studio is they were hoping that Meg would help Nathan get a handle on Inma. The problem was that they were having trouble making this relationship work between an 18-year-old human guy and this 11-year-old giant, you know, a 60-foot-tall child. And now Disney announces that Gigantic has been pushed from November of 2018 to November 2020. What Disney was initially saying about this is, we had to do this because Bobby and Kirsten were busy doing Frozen the Musical, as well as Frozen 2, which had just been announced as arriving in theaters in November sure. 27, 2019. So it's like music was going to be a key part of this movie. In fact, at the D23 Expo, one of the things they showed was a storyboarded song sequence called Little Man that showed her interacting with Jack as if he were a doll. That's kind of fun. You know, it was it was a wonderful, funny idea, but it was just like, with music such a key part of the success of Be It Tangled or Frozen or Princess and the Frog, it was just sort of like, we can't have the people handing the music mm-hmm. just off you doing other stuff, so let's just put this in a hold. But the problem of shifting it to a 2020 release date is Gigantic was supposed to play a huge role in World Showcase's future. That is part of the five-year plan that the $2 billion redo Mm -hmm. of Epcot, one of the key components of this was going to be a ride-through attraction that keyed off of Gigantic that was then going to serve as the hook for the Spain Pavilion. And Disney's been trying to get a Spain Pavilion added to World Showcase since 1982. I mean, if you walked around World Showcase the first year that Epcot Center was open, there were signs up for the three pavilions that were coming next. And that was Israel, Equatorial Africa, and Spain. And Disney kept making runs at Spain. In fact, I've got a story just today that I pulled from the 2002, September 2002 edition of the Orlando Sentinel that revealed that Walt Disney executives are meeting with Spanish officials in Madrid to discuss making Spain the theme of Epcot's 11th International Pavilion. This has been something that Disney's been circling for 35 years. And this was going to be the movie that did this. I think it was uh, 2000, early 2014, before they called it Gigantic. It was Giants. And at that time, talking with folks at the studio about it, they said flat out that we set this in Spain, and as soon as Imagineering found out that we were setting this in Spain, they were thrilled because they've been trying to make the Spanish pavilion forever. Has, has Imagineering, and I'm just spitballing ideas here, Jim, has Imagineering thought of paying someone at the studio's to say that Star Lord visited Spain when he was growing up. I'm just saying that we could we could tie all of this together and get this done in like uh, the 35th anniversary event that, that was held at Epcot on October 1st. That uh, here was uh, Melissa Valquette confirming what you and I have been saying all along that that the Guardians ride that's going in where Ellen's Energy Adventure used to be. I mean mm-hmm. the the original pavilion. That's only where the pre-show, the queue, the load and unload, and the gift shop are going to be located. Right. It's another building, yeah. Yeah, actual physical ride, a 10-story tall building, will actually be outside of the park on a, a piece of undeveloped woodland out by the edge of the park line, I think, near the imagination section. Mm-hmm. And again, another little weird tweak of news here. 
I heard from folks at Imagineering this week about given the way the Guardians building is going to be positioned into the park, they're looking at that as a possible surface for Epcot getting its very own projection show. Oh, instead of, uh, instead of projecting it off of the Spaceship Earth, for example? Well, you could, you could do two shows. You could do a future world show. You could do a world showcase show. Really, if you look at all of the other parks, whether it's a Tree of Life coming to life or the show that's done in the Chinese theater and that sort of thing, this is something that Epcot is missing. And so mm-hmm. the whole notion of 10-story tall building, you know, just, that's our projection surface. Go. Anyway, I just to sort of put a cap on the gigantic thing. I know people, there are people, especially folks at Disney, who put three and four years of working on this film in who are just kind of heartbroken that it's not going to go forward. But you got to remember, if you look at, even in our contemporary history here, Wreck-It Ralph, I mean, Disney made two other runs at a story set in the world of computer gaming. There was High Score, and then there was Joe Jump, and it was only when Rich Moore came along and finally figured out how to tell the story that we got Wreck-It Ralph. And long story short, this definitely killed Spain or at least puts the kibosh on it for a while. But you and I had been hearing pretty much the same thing, though, then, about them sort of creeping in the budget and creeping in the ambition of this Epcot redo. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of sad, because, I mean, $2 billion, as far as a budget goes, would probably just bring Epcot up to par with what should have been spent on it over the last 15 years. And to say that it's it's not getting that now is disappointing. Let me put in a couple of things though, Jim. If they do decide to do a projection show outside the berm of the Energy Pavilion, so it'd be somewhere between Spaceship Earth and the Wonder parking lot. I'm just throwing this out there right now, but you might be able to see that from Port Orleans French Quarter, which is half a mile away from that. Mm. If uh, I'm just saying if you needed to, to build another large DVC-like structure themed to New Orleans. I, You know what they, they could do? They could do a Superdome, the New Orleans Superdome, <laughs> as a DVC resort at French Quarter. No, really. But I mean, you, you could probably see it at, uh, at, from the top, tops of the French Quarter stuff. Uh, just an idea, throwing it out there, looking mm-hmm. at the map. Because Disney is going sort of towards the moderates now for DVC stuff. The other thing that was amazing in terms of DVCs and moderates in development is I was driving down Buena Vista Drive uh, the other day, headed towards a fabulous dinner at Bull and Bear, we passed by Disney's Caribbean Beach, and I swear, Jim, you could see all the way through from Buena Vista Drive to the lagoon there. They've cut so many trees down and done so much clearing of landscape there, I guess, for not only the DVC buildings, but for the gondola stuff. It's it's like they're clear-cutting to get ready for subsistence farming, like they're going to start growing cassava root or growing cassava root. Over there, it's it's an incredible amount of open land now for these. Well, remember, things. you know that when they were doing the track layout for the Skyliner, that the path that it follows has to have the equivalent of drainage. Oh, so, yeah, just okay. the notion that the, whatever these gondolas are passing over has to be obstruction-free and has to have decent drainage. Oh, it has to be obstruction-free because if it gets stuck. Over an obstruction, you've got to winch a ladder or something up there or have the people parachute to safety go. or whatever. There you go. So, All right. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. And you've got to get some fairly wide vehicles in there because it's going to be – okay. That, that makes more sense because it's it's yeah. dramatic how much landscaping has gone from Caribbean Beach. And that stuff had been there for going on 30 years. Yeah, my understanding is that the horticulture is supposed to come in after the fact and – between the pylons and the path of the gondolas, that they're going to really be tasked with the really ugly scar that 
to be honest, you're not supposed to be looking at it. You're supposed to be looking at the wonderful character-covered gondola that's passing overhead and thinking, oh, I want to ride that. Oh, I should stay at that resort. So, yeah, it's going to be one of those things where after the fact you're going to see horticulture really working hard to sort of obscure that scar. I'm interested to see what it does to the traffic on Buena Vista Drive as these things pass over it because that's going to be a distraction. And with the number of lights that are on Buena Vista Drive, you got to wonder how much uh, how much that's going to back up traffic when, when people see it for the first time. No, you're right. The first couple of years is going to be very interesting. All right. So I'll have to talk about the full bull and bear dinner at another time. I ended up taking my mom and most of my family out for my mom's 75th birthday. We ordered a dozen entrees, dozens and dozens of appetizers and desserts and stuff. Some fabulous service over at Bull and Bear. It was fantastic. We'll talk about it on an upcoming show. But I do want to mention uh, food and wine. So we had a, a long weekend where everybody flew down. My mom wanted to do her 75th birthday at Walt Disney World. So we had a group of 12 you know, traipsing through the theme parks you know, for the last week or so. And one of the things we, we did was food and wine booths. And I hadn't done food and wine in a while. But Jim, this time I did it with five teenagers, five teenage girls. Okay. okay. Well, you know, everyone does their community service in a different way. And this was mine. What I, what I didn't realize is how much five teenage girls can eat. Mm-hmm. Prior to Mexico, uh, we started at mm-hmm. the Flavors Through Fire because everyone wanted some sort of meat thing or the vast majority of them wanted a meat thing. So we started there. We go to Mexico. Actually, before Mexico, there was, I think, Greece was before that. So we ate at Greece, then at Mexico, then at China, then Spain, then Italy. <laughs> and then we went and had dinner at Marrakesh. Yeah. So all the food was, was really good, actually. I was pleasantly surprised at, at how tasty mm-hmm. it was. I think the food at China was excellent. I uh, tried one of everything there. So they have a spicy chicken. They have a duck. Roll is really good. The thing that I liked most, and this is surprising to me, the uh, chocolate-covered cannoli at, at Italy. Really? I never go to the Italy pavilion, the Italy booth, because it's sort of cliche stuff. And they had calamari, and they had a pasta with shrimp. And those were, those were very tasty. The thing with cannoli mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. It, cannoli shells don't do well in Florida humidity. Because it tends to absorb moisture, and, and the cannoli uh, is supposed to be crunchy. This was perfect, chocolate covered, filled with uh, cool cream. And even though it was you know ninety two degrees outside or ninety degrees outside with ninety two percent humidity, and it had literally just rained, this cannoli was was crispy and crunchy. I was absolutely surprised at how good the food was there. And, and but then I remembered this: the actually the two best cannoli I've ever had in my entire life were both in the Italy Pavilion. So I don't know why yeah. I. Yeah, uh, Tuta Gusto does a does really excellent cannoli. You could go there and eat six of them. It's absolutely fantastic. So I was pleasantly, pleasantly surprised. A little while I'm going to head back tonight and do the other half of food and wine and see what happens there. But I was uh, mm-hmm. so far so good. I was, I was pretty happy with it. It's ungodly hot here. Also, we had some excellent service at Restaurant Marrakesh on Saturday night. We did dinner for 12 people, which was super interesting. Uh, they still have the belly dancing at Restaurant Marrakesh. I thought they got rid of it. Yeah, I thought they got rid of it, but no. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned at the start you also did Halloween uh, Mickey's Not-So-Scary or... Yeah, Monday night I did a Not-So-Scary Halloween party. Most of my family dressed up. And in fact, there were a lot of people that dressed up more than, than usual. I, I, maybe you saw my Twitter feed, the people who dressed up as the Ellen's Energy Adventure Jeopardy. Nancy was just uh, telling you, <laughs> Judy, that's how you had to have your picture taken with them. But I had to have a picture taken with them. But uh, there were a lot of Peter Pan, Captain Hook things. There was a lot of Beauty and the Beast there. The thing that amazed me was the party started at seven. We got there at six. 
we had some my Disney experience problems checking mm-hmm. in, which I'll I'll tell about on another show because it was pervasive the entire weekend. But once we got checked in, the the thing that surprised mm-hmm. me was it, even at seven p.m. it was still 88, 89 degrees, tons of humidity, and we had all of these people dressed as like Belle or Gaston or the Beast mm-hmm. or Captain Hook was a really popular outfit. I mean, people doing the whole wig with the heavy silk overcoat mm-hmm. or brocade overcoat. I mean, it, these people had to be dying from the heat. And the other thing that surprised me was the number of people that were there for that party. It was it was fairly crowded. In fact, year mm-hmm. over year, from 2015 to 2016, we noticed about a 25% jump in the average wait time for attractions. And then from 2016 to 2017 so far, we've noticed a 25% jump in wait times. So I'm, I'm not sure whether Disney's selling more tickets to these things or whether they're just better attended than they used to be, but it was crowded everywhere that we went. Lines for food weren't terrible, but the crowds were sort of also amplified by this. While we were uh, there during the party, Space Mountain and Buzz Lightyear had broken down. Splash Mountain was already offline, and then Pirates was breaking down intermittently Mm -hmm. during the party. So at one point you had, Mm -hmm. I was surrounded by a bunch of people dressed like they were from uh, provincial France, all sweaty and grumpy because nothing was working around them. I'm like, this is how the revolution started. Exactly like Let this. Them eat them. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? right? It's like, if we could transport everyone around me, you know, half a world away and 300 years, 300 years back into, in time, we could, we could foment a revolution here. Now, do you think that this bump in attendance is, are they marketing it better or people, you know, for example, they started that Sanderson Sisters show and that sort of thing. Oh my goodness, Sanderson Sisters. I was like, so Hannah was just at the tail end of the the popularity of, it's Hocus Pocus, right? Mm -hmm. And it was just at the tail end of that before she sort of outgrew the Disney Channel. The popularity of those two things is inexplicable to me. But there were, I mean, Hocus Pocus people everywhere and they loved it. So I think this is the generation that saw it and really, really liked it. We had a number of people, saw a number of people who were dressed up as those characters, you know, as the characters from the movies. I also think that Halloween in general is becoming a really popular secular holiday in the United States. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the same thing's happening in Japan, right? Where the Japanese have sort of adopted Halloween as its own holiday. And I think I think with the US too, you're seeing the same thing. It's a chance for everyone to you know to have fun. You sort of eases you into the the holiday season. But yeah, it was it was definitely more popular. But the cast members were troopers, man. There was I mean tons of candy. Everyone was super happy. Cast members were all all very good on it. I didn't mind the ride breakdown so much because there were tons of character greetings out there that we did at the Tomorrowland dance party, which I mean you, you know what I like to bust a move now and then. <laughs> but Sully was there Mike Wazowski was there, and they they interacted with everyone a lot. The DJ was great. It was a lot of fun. You could definitely see the kids having fun. The one thing that I thought was the most disappointing, the mm-hmm. thing that I thought Disney could have done way better was the Hallowishes fireworks. So I'm used to that the happily ever after projection show now on the castle. Mm-hmm. It, in comparison, this thing looks like it was staged by high school amateurs. It doesn't have any of the detailed projections on the castle. The fireworks are fine. The narration is fine. The music is fine. But... I came expecting to see something like Happily Ever After, and I got 1950s slideshow, and that was that was disappointing. I hope they hope they do something next year. Then let me give you some good news for 2018. Though I have heard this may slide to 2019. Remember, we're getting a second holiday projection show added to the studios, but supposedly on the heels of once that show is wrapped. 
the team that's working on that pivots to do the new holiday Halloween show for the castle. That they recognize that you can't do okay, hollow wishes and put that side by side with happily ever after. It just there's a noticeable drop off in quality. So they are already sort of oh, that's testing good. the show out. But again, it's it's a question of do we launch it in 2018 or do we launch it in 2019? But it's definitely on the punch list. That's good to hear. Yeah, because it's uh, for anybody who's who visits the Magic Kingdom on a regular basis to see that kind of show for. I mean, I think we, I ended up paying for twelve people. You know, a little over twelve hundred dollars for tickets. That's a lot of money for a second-rate castle show. And part of it is the fact that Happily Ever After is so good. Mm-hmm. You know, I really like that show quite a bit, and I kind of built it up to everybody in the family. And it turns out they couldn't stay late enough to see mm-hmm. to see it any night that we were. I know it's you know there's always yeah. time for an next, next okay. show though, but. Uh, it was kind of disappointing. You mentioned the studio stage gym. So I was there on Saturday. Saturday was not a good day for park operations. Mm-hmm. 21% of the Magic Kingdom's ride capacity was down on Saturday. I was at the mm-hmm. studios. So the studios, as we all know, is, is undergoing some a transformation, mm-hmm. if you will. There are four rides, three rides plus Muppets, right? So there's Star Tours, there's Rock and Roller Coaster, there's Tower of Terror, and there's a bunch of stage shows. So uh, Disney doesn't typically schedule major shows between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. because they know that people are eating lunch and they don't want the shows to play to half-empty theaters. So on Saturday, there was no Beauty and the Beast show scheduled on Sunset Boulevard between 11 and 1. And I don't know whether there was a Indiana Jones show. But here's the thing that happened, Jim. So in this park with four rides, both Tower of Terror and Rocket Roller Coaster went down uh, bet- between 11 and 1. There was no stage show to take any excess capacity on Sunset Boulevard. So not only was it 90 degrees with angry people who had nothing to do, but there was nowhere to go. And that was an interesting afternoon. We'd ridden Toy Story. At that point, it was like, do we go see Disney Junior? Do we walk through Star Wars Launch Bay, which became immediately mm-hmm. packed full of people. And so we ended up doing that. We, uh, we got our picture taken with all the characters. That was fun. So they actually have a character greeting now for the commander on the bridge, oh. which is Kylo Ren. Mm-hmm. And he talks. Yeah. So you can ask him how his dad's doing. And, uh, and that's. <laughs> oh, oh, you're making friends left and right. You know. <laughs> Super fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They handle it fairly well. The, as soon as Rock and Roller Coaster came back up, though, the standby wait in line jumped to 95 minutes. The single rider line became astronomical. In fact, they were telling people with fast passes that the wait to use your fast pass was going to be around 45 minutes. And at that point, we decided we needed to go back and go for a swim. Mm-hmm. That was our day at the studios. I, I don't know how they they can deal with customer service issues at that point because that's 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 tough. Anyway, but overall, I mean, every I think everyone had fun. Not so scary Halloween party was a highlight of the trip. The bull and bear visit was a highlight of the trip. My family rode Pandora, flight of passage. Mm-hmm. Everyone loved it. Thought it was amazing. So there there was a, definitely some some fun things to be had. Just sliding back to the studio for a sec. Got a construction update on Galaxy's Edge. Oh, you should see the amount of steel. That is in there. So for, let me let me say this too, Jim. If you go in the back way, the way that I come in through the studios, there are so many twists and turns in the road. I think that Disney's basically challenging you <laughs> to get in alive. <laughs> like, it, like, like, sort of like your preview love to the studios thing. Look, if you can make it through the zigzaggy, up-down construction cone area that is the studios, you must really want to be here. But you drive by it, and the amount of steel that's already been that's already gone vertical behind 
the studios is just astounding. This it looks like a huge construction project back there. Yeah, but they are throwing as many people as they can at it. Evidently, they've lost a number of workers just to the fact that there is so many opportunities in Florida now on the heels of the hurricane. People are abandoning this job because there was higher paying work to be found and doing ruse and that sort of thing. So that was a hiccup they weren't anticipating. But they're throwing hammer and tongs at this. They are trying to close the gap because Disneyland will, in fact, be able to get its Galaxy's Edge to have it in soft uh, opening mode in the late winter, early spring of 2019. So by the time they actually throw open the doors over the Memorial Day weekend in May, mm-hmm. they'll have a handle on how to handle the crowds, how to deal with the parking issues. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to this. There yeah. was a time relatively recently that the Orlando version was a full six months behind schedule compared to the Disneyland version. They they believe at this point they're just three months apart at this point, and they're hoping that they can actually close the gap. But it looks like the Disney World version may end up opening the first week of July of 2019, as of right now. So summer. But again, same deal. They want to have a three-month period of soft opening, of bringing people in to try the individual attractions, because both parks will change fundamentally once this yeah. land opens. You know, the center of gravity of Disneyland and the studio oh. fundamentally change. Yeah, it shifts to the back of the park. I mean, almost instantly. In fact, one of the places that you have to walk by to get to Star Wars Land, the new. Um, Oh, the baseline? Baseline, yeah, with the tap house. Uh, I tried that on Saturday. I thought it was very good. I mean, a little bit expensive, but the thing I'm a little surprised with the tap house, the, the bar place there, is how few people that holds. I think they're going to immediately run into capacity issues there unless they start opening up other things. So we couldn't bring our party of 12 into there. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's going to be able to handle uh, crowds for something like Star Wars Land. But the facade that they're building there, so sort of between Muppets and where the old writer stop used to be in this mm-hmm. new tap house beer places. It, it's an impressive looking facade. It's going to block out the vast majority of the Star Wars land stuff. So you won't be able to see it. They could do a Hollywood, uh, sorry, a New York streetmosphere thing there. I, I could even see a small version of Osborne lights coming back. It seems like they have enough room to do that on sort of three sides. Wouldn't be totally as immersive as the old streets of America, but And looking at the construction, you can kind of close one eye and see how they might bring that back. Yeah, but you're right. Once these things open, the center of gravity in those parks is going to be pushed so far back into the park. You know, that you got to wonder, like, what do restaurants like Hollywood Brown Derby do or what happens to things like Beauty and the Beast stage show? Because the the 11 a.m. version of that show will probably have no one in it. But, uh, I mean, Disney will will figure it out. And obviously, again, you got to remember with the studio, we're only – seven months out from the opening of Toy Story Land. And that will have a huge impact on yeah. itself and the it, same issues. No, I, there's nothing there that in terms of food that I can see. I went by the uh, the old one man's dream, the now the Walt Disney presents mm-hmm. uh, sort of preview center for it. The model looks good, but it, yeah, I think that it's going to be one of those things that they, they regret not putting a restaurant sort of in the back around mm-hmm. it. But, but with the studios, you know, once you go past the berm, you have a lot of land around it. I mean, they could they could expand it again if they 
if they wanted to. So so we'll see what happens. But I'm excited to see that open, actually. Friend Imaginary is working on, on Galaxy's Edge. Flat said, look, we have these hugely elaborate sit-down restaurants. In addition to quick service inside of Galaxy's Edge, what we don't want is people going, I'm hungry, walking out of Galaxy's Edge and being able to get a quick sit-down meal and then going back in. We're spending all this money on these two immense sit-down cantina restaurant-type things, and we want them full. Yeah, they don't really. Interesting thing, they don't view Mama Melrose as competition. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, Mama Melrose. Yeah, it's not. It's it's kind of tucked in the back corner there, mm-hmm. and I think that definitely helps. You really have to be going to Muppet Vision to see it. Yeah. Plus, I think that'll be a nice spillover for that. But the um, driving in on South Studio Drive with uh, the way the construction is right now, number one, that's a challenge. But just to see the amount of steel that's basically girders that are two and three stories tall already, going all the way from World Drive until you hit Pizza Rizzo, it's got to be. A thousand feet Mm -hmm. of nothing but steel. So, you know, a a good quarter of a mile ish Mm -hmm. of nothing but construction. That's a that's a lot of stuff. It's it definitely looks bigger than I anticipated it being. I mean, it's basically that entire bottom section of the studios just lined with stuff. And and that that doesn't even show the stuff that's happening for Toy Story Land. And I have to ask, as you're driving in, do we look to the left and see anything beyond site clearing for the hotel or it's all unframed steel at this point. So I I don't think there's anything there for the hotel, but there's so much construction going on, Jim, and so many lane switches that you pretty much have to keep your eye on the road. Legitimately, that's scary when you drive it. It's kind of funny. Oh, one quick question. When uh, Star Wars opens, are they going to close the Star Wars launch bay? Because that's at the opposite end of the park. Well, again, remember, long-range plan is that once Toy Story Land and uh, Galaxy's Edge opens, Supposedly, we see One Man's Dream and... Oh, right. The Phase 3 stuff, yeah. It gets pulled down. The old animation studio gets pulled down. Mind you, they have to clear all of the executives who are sitting in the building where the animators used to work, the wonderful design by artist rooms, and their enclosed parking structure. But yeah, that chunk in the middle of the park then becomes land number three, which is supposed to be... Monsters, Inc. All right, let's go on to our main topic here. This is Mineral King Part 2. We had talked about Mineral King last time. It was a ski resort area in California that Walt became interested in around the time that he was asked to prepare the opening ceremonies for the 1960 Winter Olympics. And the idea was that skiing, according to Walt, was that skiing would become much more popular among Americans. And this ski lodge in California caught Walt's eye. That's where we were We were at. Weren't you saying that you've got the document there that it was in 58 that the National Park Service actually started looking at whether or not they should be doing something with, with Mineral King? Or? Yes, in the late 50s, the National Park Service decides to open up parts of this national park area to commercialization. And the state of California had decided to facilitate this in a number of ways. One was that the area of the county that Mineral King is in gave up rights to the roads in Mineral King. Now, that sounds a little strange that a county would give up the rights to the roads in its own borders. But what that did is it enabled the state to take over and more importantly, Jim, pay for the building of roads. And that was important to Walt because these were basically at this point very small primitive roads, basically nothing more than slightly paved or logging roads, right? The thing is that on the exact same year, 1872, was when the first 
National Park of the United States, Yellowstone, was, was actually signed into existence by Ulysses S. Grant. Mm-hmm. But that same year is when there was the big silver strike in Mineral King. The very next year, because so many people wanted to get to Mineral King to try their luck, there was this really enterprising guy who built a road that took you the 17 miles through the incredibly rough terrain. And the way he made money off of it, it was a toll road. If you wanted to get to Mineral King, you had to pay this guy to travel on this road. And anyway, Mineral King basically blows itself out within a couple of years. And Sequoia National Forest is then established in 1890. But it isn't till 1908, and that's 25 years later, that it turns out the road that went to Mineral King actually went through two chunks of uh, Redwood Forest. There was the Redwood Creek Grove and the Altwell Grove. And so what they decided to do is 25 years later, they absorbed these Redwood Groves into Sequoia National Forest. But the Mineral King Toll Road now goes through with part of Sequoia National Forest, these two new groves. And this was the thing that constantly tripped up anybody who tried to develop because, again, you're now going through a national park. And to have a road that goes through the national park, it just wasn't going to happen. Part of the problem with the road was that prior to Walt Disney getting involved, the road was so primitive that it basically prohibits people from getting to Mineral King. So in the 1950s, the first development happens at Mineral King. So it's a group of investors from California that come together. They develop about 20 acres in Mineral King. They put up a dining room that can feed 600 people. So it's sort of like quick service restaurant, a couple of cocktail bars, gift shops, drug stores. They have 80 hotel rooms with 314 beds, which mm. is I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the bed-to-room ratio there, Jim. <laughs> so it's four beds per room, which is interesting. But they've got a nice skating rink. They've got a swimming pool. And they've got sort of like a, another dining hall. They build this in the 50s. And then they run into some bad luck. Two very warm winters coupled with some avalanche problems basically means that people don't come during this skiing season. Also, they find out that when they did this initial build, Apparently, there were some weatherproofing problems with the buildings that were constructed. Net result is this. In April 1960, the guys that own Mineral King realized that they're going to need to invest a lot more money in order to fix the things that, that went wrong and then to actually start attracting more people. The road itself is going to cost $5 million, which means no one wants to build the road, right? $5 million back then is, was a lot of money. We're talking about you could buy all of Mineral King at this point for under a million dollars. So to spend $5 million on a road was out of the question. So one of the owners of Mineral King, one of the investors in Mineral King, approaches Dick Irvine and Buzz Price early in 1960. And he says, look, we built this thing up, but now the other stockholders, the other people who've invested in Mineral King have lost their nerve. These last couple of of holiday seasons where we didn't get the skiing traffic that we, we should have. And this problem that we have with construction means nobody wants to invest any more money in it. You could basically buy, if Walt Disney wanted to, you could buy Mineral King for a song. So Disney starts doing this analysis. And the memos that we see on this are really intriguing for a number of reasons. Number one, Buzz Price does the calculations and he figures out that Walt could buy controlling interest of all of Mineral King, all of this development in the National Park for $575,000. He only needs two thirds of the stock to do it. And that he could probably do it just by issuing Disney stock 
and then paying off those stockholders using the profits from Mineral King going forward. So basically, he's telling Walt, look, you could buy this thing for paper, which is kind of interesting. The other interesting thing that Buzz says, and this is where the value of a good lawyer comes in handy. He says, basically, you could take a $300,000 tax write-off by improving Mineral King. He's only paying $600,000 for it. He could get $300,000 off of his taxes, Jim, <laughs> just by paying it, pays, pays off half of it just by tax stuff. This is why you, you have lawyers. But anyway, Walt gets really interested in this. He starts doing talks with not only the shareholders, but he gets Buzz Price to do the, the research. Buzz comes up with some ideas. So in this meeting uh, towards the end of March, 1960, Buzz says, here are the basic things that you need to do. Number one, you need to promote Mineral King if you buy it. And who's better at promotion than Walt Disney? But you need more things to do, right? You want to turn this into not just a winter destination, but a summer destination. The winter destination includes a bobsled ride, shopping, village shows, a Swiss church. I didn't know the Swiss were, were that religious, but okay, we'll go with it, Buzz. A pond, a gold panning, a kid's swimming adventure, a recreation alley. You need better uh, facilities for employees, you can have a pitch and putt area for golf. You can do sleigh rides. You can do hill rides. You can do skeet shooting. I mean, Buzzbee essentially comes up with this list of things that you could do during the summer. So he does that. While he's doing this, and this is where it gets interesting, Okay. the investors for Mineral King declare bankruptcy on May 13th, 1960. So they file chapter 11 on it. At that point, the Forestry Service, National Park Service gets involved and says, okay, you guys tried it. You went bankrupt. They start talking to Disney and they start actively soliciting other ideas for commercialization of the area. And they're saying, look, if this company couldn't make a run at it, it's because there isn't enough infrastructure to get people there. We know that no one's going to pay $5 million to upgrade the road. So through Disney and through the state of California, they start negotiating who owns the roads so that the state of California can start doing road improvements. It essentially becomes uh, Governor Brown's problem, not the individual city of Mineral King to improve the roads. That gets done. But the Forestry Service, as we all know, part of the government, it takes them forever to move on these things. Things lay low until 1965. Jim, what did Disney do, by the way, between 1960 and 1965 in terms of films? Let's state the obvious. 64 is when Poppins happens, and suddenly this fountain of money comes pouring into the company. And this makes it possible to actually do what they were going to do in Florida. And... At that point, Walt Disney World was a $100 million project, whereas when they were looking at Mineral King, it was projected to be a $35 million recreation center. Here's Governor Brown trying to get the feds and the state of California on board with the idea that in order to create access yeah. to this $35 million recreation center that Walt Disney wants to build, they're going to have to spend $25 million on an all-weather highway. And that's the phrase, an all-weather highway because this thing had to be wide yeah. enough so you could plow the snow off of the thing so people could get there. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of investment that just throws everybody off. The other thing is is that when the, the Forestry Service realizes that they, if they're going to need this kind of investment, they're going to need to open up a larger section of the mountain for development. So they start soliciting proposals in the early 1960s. By 1965, there are a number of investor groups that want to buy the land around Mineral King. So Walt Disney is definitely one of them. In fact, Walt at this time sends a letter to the company. So Walt personally sends a letter to, to the Walt Disney Company saying, 
I think this is an excellent opportunity, investment opportunity for the company. But if you don't want to do it as a company, I will do it using my own money. Fair enough. Now, here's the problem. One of the other groups that are investors for this happen to be fairly well-funded. One of them is a group headed by Robert Brandt, who uh, runs the Mary Carter Paint Company. Are you familiar with this, Jim? Mm, not ringing a bell. Uh, okay. So Robert Brent's the husband of Janet Lee. You remember her from the cycle. Oh, movie, oh right? wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now I remember this. Please <laughs> tell this story. I love this story. So he wants to develop this. So he's the husband of Janet Lee, a famous Hollywood actress. He and a consortium of people decided that they want to compete with Walt Disney on the bidding. Walt is understandably concerned about this. So he hires private investigators named Julian R. Blodgett and Associates to wonder, for example, where these people are getting their money from. I will now read to you the first sentence of the second paragraph of this memorandum. So the question was, where's this guy, Robert Brandt, getting his money from? Indications are that the Mary Carter Paint Company is a front for the flow of underworld money into legitimate businesses. Mr. Blodgett is personally convinced of these connections. He also had a number of names of persons with underworld connections in the East who were involved or had been doing business with the Mary Carter Paint Company or its various subsidiary operations. He can obtain sufficient documentation for reporters or publications to begin publicizing these connections. This could require a trip by him and his associates to Florida and possibly Washington, D.C. When Mr. Blodgett was with the FBI, he was stationed for several years in Visalia, he also taught a lot of enforcement at the College of Sequoias. He's quite familiar with the Mineral King area. So anyway, basically, Buzz Price hires a private investigator on behalf of Walt who determines that there's mob money that's funding Robert Brand's interest in Mineral King. So I'm, I'm reading the dossier on this, which is dated November 30th, 1965. And it goes into a ton of detail about Robert Brand's first marriage, how he got divorced, and the unseemly details of the uh, divorce but the funniest thing to me is that the, one of the memos details that he's Robert Brent is a, a known associate of Jimmy Hoffa, Teamsters boss. <laughs> so Jimmy Hoffa actually referenced in the in the Walt Disney archives, which I think is just the funniest Ow. thing. Actually, they refer to him as this. Here it is. It has been alleged by a confidential source of information who has access to, uh, to records in Washington, D.C., so I'm thinking at this point, it's J. Edgar Hoover, that uh, James Hoffa, president of the Teamsters Union, and Mike Singer, former Teamsters Union official and convicted extortionist, invested in allied television and that their interest in the company has continued through the successor companies to Riverside Financial, which is basically a source of income for Robert Brandt and his, his other stuff. Anyway, it's this whole sort of explanation of where where this money is coming from. But it's it basically starts with mob money. It goes through uh, savings and loan companies, it goes through a television company, and it ends up with this guy who wants to invest in Mineral King. That's what this memo says. Holy cow. And so, but this is one of, of six, right? Yeah, there are a bunch of different groups that want to invest in it. Walt at this time is also lobbying the California State Senate, not only to, uh, to invest in the roads, but to make sure that he sort of has like front spot in lobbying for this. And basically what he's saying is, look, if all of these investment packages, if everybody that wants to buy Mineral King wants to spend about the same amount of money or wants to pay about the same amount of money for, for it, would it be great for the state of California if someone who's really good at promotion buys it and then promotes Mineral King? Wouldn't it be great for the state if someone like me, Walt Disney, were to promote Mineral King 
to various people who want to come and ski. That's basically what he's saying with this stuff. And oh, by the way, could you pitch in $25 million for roads? But the way Walt was sort of baiting the hook here is that he was handing them the reports that Buzz had created, which said that if they got Mineral King up out of the ground after 15 years of operation, oh, yeah, yeah. between you know the 2,400 permanent jobs that would be added to the area, they were figuring on, you know, if you think of the homes, the apartments, the hotels, the restaurants that would, would grow up around it, mm. this project all by itself was going to add $1 billion to the California economy. And Walt is telling people this. So let me give you let me give you a letter he writes to a state senator from California. And by the way, you could tell how Walt is sort of schmoozing with the politicians on this. Mm-hmm. This is to the Honorable Hugh Burns, California State Senate, State Capitol, Sacramento, California, dated June 25th, 1965. Dear Senator Burns, Harrison Price, that's Buzz, and Robert Hicks have told me of your excellent progress with the Mineral King Highway Program, evidenced by the introduction and passage of Senate Bill Number 81. We are aggressively working on ambitious plans for development of Mineral King with the objective of doing something outstanding on a major scale for both summer and winter visitors. We see in this program much more than a group of lifts for skiers. If enough imagination and investment is brought into play, Mineral King can become one of the greatest multi-season resort settings, serving large numbers of Californians from all over the state. We deeply appreciate your public-spirited furtherance of this program and we'll work with you in any way we can to establish need and priority on the highway. Sincerely yours, Walter E. Disney. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how you write to a politician to get things done. Absolutely. (laughs) Class is dismissed here. Yeah, everything. Excellent progress. Greatest multi-season resort. Deeply appreciate your public spirited furtherance. It's not about the profit. Profit is merely a byproduct we will learn to live with. It's about the public spirit. I love this letter. It's fantastic. So by this time, remember, uh, by 1965, just to give you an idea of Walt's scope of this thing, remember we said that the lodge has beds for 340 people, 80 rooms, 340 beds. Walt, in 1965, sends this letter out to the board of directors saying, middle of 1965, here's what we have planned for this. We have plans for overnight uh, accommodations for at least 10,000 people, up from 320 people to 10,000. We are going to have a ski lift with a minimum capacity of 2,000 people an hour off highway parking for 1,200 cars. We're going to make investments in shelters, in first aid, in communication, in water supplies, in sanitation, in maintenance. We're going to have swimming, horseback riding, camping, golfing, tennis, and other activities. And by the way, we need to put a bid in by August 31st of 1965 for this, for all of these things. They would get a 30-year permit for development plus a one-year development for uh, for ski lifts and things like that. So basically, Walt's saying to the government, we have massive plans. He's telling the Walt Disney Productions people, like, this thing's going to be huge and here's what we think it's, it's going to be. But you have to understand that you're trying to build something in a place that some winters gets 42 inches of snow and doesn't clear till late April. Yeah. The plan was they start work in 1969. By December of 73, they wanted to have eight ski lifts in place at that point using four of the natural bowls of the mountain, and they could accommodate 7,000 skiers at a time. And the village that you were describing at that point would only have room for 1,500 overnight guests. What's kind of interesting is all of this talk about it's going to be a year-round resort. It's like, well, yeah, but for about five years of this, during the summer months when people would be coming up, it's going to be a construction site because 
between yeah. December of 73 and December of 78, they wanted to jump the number of ski lifts from 8 to 14. They wanted to develop more bowls and be able to double the capacity that they'd wanted to have 14,000 skiers at any one time could be on the mountain. I mean, it was this ridiculously ambitious plan, but again, but the key, the key the whole time was you have to have that road. So Walt does these things. He he gets everybody excited for it. This is the middle of 1965. We all know that the project falls apart. Why does the project fall apart, Jim? Walt dies the next year. I mean, we know that, right? Yeah, that, that's it exactly. We, we lose Walt. And more to the point, you have an organization like the Sierra Club that, yes, this is a project that could potentially add $1 billion to the California economy. But again, the only way you get to Mineral King is through those two protected sequoia groves. And as far as the Sierra Club was concerned... Right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Because in 1965, I have a letter from, I guess it's the precursor to the Sierra Club. They basically say... Actually, one of the headlines on the paragraph says, don't be misled uh, about all of this publicity and information about the potential of Mineral King. It's just going to devastate everything. Is, th- is that what happens, that it's you start getting environmentalists involved? And- this is the early days of, of environmental groups. I mean, the Sierra Club itself had only started getting aggressive and political a couple of years prior. And once we lose Walt, this whole project changes. Yeah. So eventually, Disney moves on to other things. They build the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World. They go into build Epcot, and this falls by the wayside. But Jim, it's kind of sad because the projections that Buzz Price did now 57 years ago about things like the amount of snowfall, even though we've got global warming, it's still true. Let Let me just give you an example. We'll wrap this up. And this is why Buzz Price says it was the greatest project that Disney never built. This year, 2016 to 2017, Guess how long, how many days you had skiing on Mineral King? Oh, 180 days. <laughs> 270 days this oh. season lasted. It started in October of 2016. The ski lifts closed August 6th. <laughs> they open again later this month. <laughs> so, okay. Basically, I think if you've got 20 minutes, you could spend between ski seasons here. Yeah, so actually, the interesting thing is that Two of the longest ski seasons on record have mm-hmm. happened in the last 25 years. The longest ski season on record for Mineral King was 1994-1995, where they had less than eight weeks of closures. So they opened in early October. They closed August 14th. They're still getting more than 600 inches of snow a year, some years as many as 800 inches of snow. So when Buzz identified Mineral King as the place with the most snow and the most skiing potential in the United States 57 years ago, man, he was fought on for that. No, absolutely. And not to leave this story hanging, but even though Disney eventually backed away from Mineral King, they did still try to get a California ski area up and going, and that's Independence Lake, which we'll have to talk about the next time. <laughs> All right, we'll, uh, we'll do that. We'll wrap this one up then. All right, folks, you've been, uh, you've been listening to the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. Please go on to iTunes, Stitcher, or your local glacier if you can find one. <laughs> And write a review of our show and tell us what you would like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show. Take care.